with you, Sojourn. Today's scripture reading is 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of our Lord. Since then, we have such a hope, we act with great boldness. We are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from gazing steadily until the end of the glory of what was being set aside. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains. It is not lifted because it is set aside only in Christ. Yet still today, whenever Moses is read, a veil lives over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Sojourn. How are y'all doing? My name is Josh, one of the pastors here, and I have the joy of bringing God's word for you this morning. Well, last Sunday, we concluded our uh, summer series through the I Am Statements of Jesus. And today, I'm excited, uh, I get to kick off a new series. And this series will last one Sunday, and it's also the conclusion of that series, so I'm glad you could make it. (laughs) Next week, Pastor Jamal will be back in the pulpit starting our Fall Vision series. Uh, Andy is going to tee us off for that at the very end of our service. But one of the um, benefits of doing a standalone sermon, Pastor Jamal said, hey, Josh, what, what have you been thinking about lately? What has the Lord been laying on your heart? Something I've been thinking about, chewing on, maybe you can relate with me, is you get on social media, Facebook, Instagram, X, I guess, and you see somebody that you know, and they're posting something that is just absolutely crazy town. It's, it's out there. It's bonkers. It's so far apart from the truth, the distortion of the truth, you don't know how they got to that. But you realize that the person who posted that five years ago, maybe they were one of your closest friends, somebody you trusted, somebody you thought was solid, maybe somebody in your community group. So the question is, How does somebody in a span of just a handful of years go from speaking the truths we believe, agreeing with us, to being so far removed from the gospel, or maybe even not even claiming Jesus at all? How does that happen? To take it a step further, if you had taken a screenshot of that post, and you had shown that to their past self five years ago, they would have said the same thing about that post that you say about it today. How does that happen? How does it happen where we see how we have friends who maybe were there for us, who we trusted, who said the things we believe, and yet five years later they are far gone? And to take it a step even further, the, the bedrock of what is causing me to wrestle with this 
is how are they any different than us? What confidence do we have that we are trending in the direction of becoming more like Jesus and not less? If we say and we agree with the same things that they did five years ago. That's the thing I'm wrestling with. And that's the thing I think this passage in 2 Corinthians Corinthians 3 speaks directly to. So the big idea I want you all to take away, to, to remember as you depart from this service, is that ultimately we become what we behold. We become what we behold. What do I mean by behold? When I say behold, it is the thing that captures our attention, our imagination, our affection, our mind wanders to that thing. It has a sense of allure to it. This is the thing that we behold. See, the thing that we become has some to do with what we say now, but more to do with what or who our heart cherishes. That is what determines the direction that we grow in. So to make this point, my outline for us this morning, I got four main sections. The first section is we're going to look at parallel passages in Exodus. Because when we read the 2 Corinthians 3 text, they're, they're talk, uh, Paul is referencing to the, this passage. So in order to understand his words in 2 Corinthians, we need to understand what he's thinking through in Exodus. And what we see is that Israel is bent from God. Their character is bent from God. But not only that, they are blind to God. We're going to look at how when we behold Jesus, that ultimately is the cure for both of these ills that that ail us. And then where I want to conclude is I want to offer some practical categories for how do we behold Jesus. I think when we talk about look to Jesus, behold Jesus, probably a lot of us in this room will say yes and amen to that, but then we're, we're left with saying, what does that actually practically mean? <laughs> how do I behold Jesus? And so we're going to conclude looking at how beholding Jesus leads to becoming like Jesus. Before we dive in, would you all pray with me? Lord Jesus, like that last song, we all sung, Jesus, you are better. You are better than anything this world has to offer. We believe it, we say it, and yet at the same time, we find our hearts are easily sidetracked to lesser goods, lesser beauties. God, we have these petty distractions and obsessions. So Jesus, we, I want for myself and I want for my church, Lord, I want you to reveal yourself to us through this text. Open our eyes to your beauty that we can be transformed into it from one degree of glory to the next. God, I lay these requests before you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so like I said, we're going to, in order to understand 2 Corinthians 3, we have to understand Exodus, this passage that Paul is referring to. And a little context, if you're newer to the faith or newer to the Bible, at this point in Exodus, what is happening is Israel, they were enslaved in Egypt, but, they got, uh, but Moses led them out of Egypt, the ten plagues, let my people go, through the Red Sea, 
And so they have been rescued by God through Moses leading them out of captivity. And so they find themselves at the foot of this mountain, Mount Sinai. And Moses has gone up to the top of this mountain. There's clouds, thunder. It's, it's like a very violent thunderstorm at the very top of this mountain. That's where Moses goes in. That's where the presence of the Lord dwells. And now Moses is up there for 40 days. And so they're getting a little nervous because they have a desert before them. They have an angry Pharaoh behind them. And Moses was their only access to the God who saved them. And so what they're doing, what they, they're fearing is like, well, maybe M Moses is gone. I don't know where he went, but we need to create a way to have access to God. So they go to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they say, hey, Aaron, craft for us a gold idol, a golden calf that we can worship this and hopefully have peace, prosperity, security as we leave Egypt. Now, this, what I want us to hear, we're going to be in, Exodus, this is Exodus 32, and after we talk through this, I'll be in Exodus 34, and there's really two parallel things going on. I call this the tale of two shiny objects, all right? In the first tale of two shiny objects, you have Moses going up to a mountain, being in God's presence, coming down, and in the first one, Moses is about to come down, and, and God says, oh, by the way, Moses, your people who I just rescued, who you were supposed to be leading, they're down there worshiping a golden calf, a little baby cow made out of metal. <laughs> so Moses is not happy. God's not happy. We read this line, Exodus 32, verse 9, something really easy to pass over. God says, I have seen this people, talking about Israel, and they are indeed a stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked, isn't that an interesting phrase to use. I want to read a, a section from a book by Old Testament theologian G.K. Beale. And what he's doing, he's picking up on what I think the, 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 that Exodus is doing here. He says, sinful Israel seems to be depicted metaphorically as a rebellious cow running wild and needing to be regathered. Is the language just coincidental? The likelihood is that this is a narrative taunt like Exodus, God is making fun of the people of Israel because they are worshiping a cow. And this is pointed to by the above observed three closely juxtaposed phrases, quickly turned aside from the way, made for themselves a golden calf, and stiff-necked in Exodus 32. So what's he saying? He's saying God is calling out, Israel has worshiped this golden calf, and in the end, they have become like that thing that they are worshiping. This gets picked up, this concept of becoming like what we worship, becoming like what we behold. The prophets later use this category as a continued taunt and judgment against Israel. Check this out in Hosea. The, for Israel is an obstinate, as obstinate as a stubborn cow. Can the Lord now shepherd them like a lamb in an open meadow? Ephraim is attached to idols. Leave him alone. So to summarize, Moses goes up on a mountain, is with God, comes down, the people are worshiping a golden calf, something shiny, and they become like that thing which they worship. All right, shift over a couple chapters, Exodus 34. In the meantime, Moses is mad, he takes the, gold, or the, uh, the tablets and he breaks them, and then he says, now I've got to make more tablets, and now I've got to go all the way up the mountain again? 
So Exodus 34, he goes on up the mountain. He's with God in his presence. There's a renewal of the covenant. God is worshiping him. It says, in, God, it says Moses was, uh, uh, God was present with him. And Moses comes down. And now we see something else. Let's look at Exodus 34. As Moses descended from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, as he descended the mountain, he did not realize that the skin of his face shone as a result of his speaking with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face shone, they were afraid to come near him. So Moses is in the presence of the Lord, and as a result, his, his appearance has been transformed. And now he radiates the glory of the God with whom he was just present with. Now Moses, he comes down, and the people are understandably a little wigged out, right? And so what the, the solution is, Moses, every time he would come and be in the presence of the Lord, his face would be shining. He gives them the word of the Lord, but then he covers it. He places a veil over his face so that Israel could not see the fading of the glory. So two parallels, both pointing to the same reality, that when Israel beheld the golden calf, they became like the golden calf. When Moses beheld God in all of his splendor and glory, his face shone, he became like that which he was worshiping. Now let's fast forward back to 2 Corinthians 3. So again, remember Paul? He's been doing read the Torah in a year plan, and he was, he's been in Exodus, and so he's got Exodus on the mind. He's writing to the church in Corinth, and this is what he says. He says, we, he's talking about himself, the authors of the letter, we're not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from gazing steadily until the end of the glory of what was being set aside. But their minds were hardened. Yet still today, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. See, over and over again, the scriptures tell us that outside of Christ, we have two problems. One, we are bent away from his character. We're meant to reflect him. We're all image bearers. But we have been bent. But more than that, we are blinded. And if the way Moses is transformed into God's image is by beholding him, you can see the problem if we are blind to him. If we're blind and we can't see God, then the means by which we can grow to be like him is cut off. Now, what I want us to feel is that this is not just Israel's problem. This is, this is everybody's problem. Now, you may look in this context and you say, well, Paul's not really talking about us, right? Like Paul is talking about the Jews, Old Covenant context. They hear the law read. They're, they're, they're veiled to the law. And I would say that's true, but I still think it still applies to us. Because in chapter 4, he's about to say that anybody who is outside of Christ, the unbeliever, our hearts are veiled to God as well. So we are all blind. There is a universal component to this. 
And, and to use the framing of, of kind of how I'm, how I'm uh, delivering the, the message for y'all today, when Israel beheld the law, their hearts are transformed in, just into stone, just like the stone tablets that the law is written on. But more than that, re- let's read Psalm 115. This is a scathing critique, not towards Israel, but this is now towards the surrounding nations. The psalmist says, their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. Those who make them are just like them, as are all who trust in them. This is the universal condition. We as humans were created to reflect the beauty and the glory of God. All of us. And Adam and Eve are in the garden and they have fellowship with him. God is present with him, walking with him in the garden. But as a result of their sin, deciding they know what is best for them to trust their own picture of what is good, right, and true, the judgment is that they have been removed from Eden. All of us have been removed from Eden. And so here's the thing, we don't stop being reflective We just start reflecting the wrong thing. And the thing we were made to to reflect, we are now out of Eden and we don't have access to. We are blind to God's glory. Now, I want us to feel this because, you know, especially in the church, those of us who've who've grown up here, like, be like Jesus, right? Grow in Christ-likeness. It can become white noise. It becomes, you know, not that special, But think about this. God is the most beautiful person in the universe. He is the most full of love, of joy, of peace, of kindness, of justice, of mercy. That's who God is. And so when we see within ourselves a a desire to be like that, praise God, that is our conscience bearing witness to the God in which we were intended to reflect. But at the same time, y'all, we desire to be like that, but we are unable to become like that. Why? Because we are blind. We are transformed into God's image by beholding him, but we are cut off. We are east of Eden. We are blind to his glory. Beholding Jesus is the only hope. Now, if you're tracking with me, you may have a couple objections to this. You may say, okay, I I accept the premise that we become what we behold, but why do I have to behold Jesus? Certainly there are other great examples. So the first objection reads like this. Why can't I look at other examples to become a better person, right? Why can't I look at Ronald Reagan, Barack Obama, Tupac Shakur, Taylor Swift, whatever picture we have of of creativity, goodness, whatever, why can't we behold these people? Well, I think that's true, and we, we should acknowledge that the, these qualities, these virtues, these characters in these people is because they reflect God's glory. When we see that, we call out, man, praise the Lord that they are resembling him, whether they know it or not, right? But if we make these people to be the example of our lives, we are simply making photocopies of photocopies. Why would we not rather cherish and worship and behold the real deal. That's Jesus. Second objection, 
It says three up there, but that's my bad. Can't count. I'm a pastor, so. <laughs> Why can't I try to become a good person in a general sense? So what does this mean? I mean, okay, Josh, I get not holding a person, but why can't, if I want to be, grow to become more loving, why can't I just desire and behold love in an abstract sense, in a general sense? Why can't I become more just in an abstract? These are both qualities, virtues that Louisville, we, we all embody, right? Uh, we desire, and praise God we don't live in like, you know, a Mad Max hellscape where we desire as a city to not be loving and not be just, Right? We hold these things because the image of God is within us. And I think like if you were to go to just a random person at a coffee shop in Louisville, they would say, yeah, I want to be loving. And, and to do that, it's just this general vague sense of becoming more loving, general vague sense of becoming more just. And I would say there's two problems with that, even though on the face it may make sense. One, if we pursue these things for their own sake, they, begin, they end up being crushed under their own weight. What do I mean by that? If I want to be loving, and that is the, the virtue that I hold over everything else, right? All the decisions I make are filtered through that lens. And so what happens is, in order to be, what, what can tend to happen is, in order to become a loving person, I ended up neglecting, smoothing over, ignoring sins committed by other people or sins that I have committed because I want to be loving. It wouldn't be loving to call out this person. It wouldn't be loving to call out the sin within myself. But in the end, that is not loving at all, is it? Or justice. History tells us when justice is pursued to its end in an abstract sense, what happens is the oppressed and the oppressor just swap around. And again, that's not justice at all. There's this tension between love and justice. And what, again, what happens is when we pursue these virtues, these character qualities in an abstract sense, they tend to fragment. And we tend to wrestle with how can we have both of these at the same time? How can we be both loving and just at the same time? And this is the tension of, of the Bible, right? How can a God who loves his people also be just against their sins? And this is the genius of the gospel, this is the beauty of the gospel, is that Jesus on the cross satisfies both the most, most loving act and also the act of justice of all human history. Jesus embodies both of these things on the cross. In fact, Jesus embodies all of these qualities that we desire to grow in because Jesus is the perfect image of God. When we read in Galatians 5, all the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, that word fruit in Galatians 5 is singular. It's not fruits. It's singular because this is the character, the heart of Jesus that the Spirit is forming within us. And so we need to see Jesus to become the people that we were created to be. But the problem is we can't see, us, see him because we're, we've been cut off and separated we can't see him. But the beauty is God can see us. We can't see him. We can't find our way to him. But he found his way to us. And he, is, he has come, and his name is Jesus, and he's shown us what God's character is like. 
Have you ever wondered what, what is God like, the creator of the cosmos? Look at Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of perfect love and joy and justice and mercy and kindness. That is Jesus. But our problem is more than just seeing him. Right? We needed to have more than just God sending his son to show us what he is like. Because we see that even if we're in God's presence, that is not enough for us. Our problem is deeper. How do we know this? Well, we have our friend Moses, who was in God's presence, who did experience. But recall, the glory that shone from his face, it was external. It wasn't internal. It didn't shape his heart. And more than that, it was temporary. How exhausting would it be to have to go up to one mountain day after day after day? We need something that is deeper and lasting. And Jesus comes, and we read in the Gospels, he performs these miracles. He heals people's eyes. And when they are given sight, the first person they see is Jesus. And those miracles show that he has the power not just to give sight to our eyes, but he has the power to give sight to our heart. And again, the brilliance and the beauty of the gospel is that in the same person, in the same act, Jesus both gives us sight, but in the act of giving us sight, he gives us the power to become like him. That is the beauty. It's not either or. It's not, hey, learn to see, and then Jesus will help you to become like him. And it's also not, hey, you're going to give your sight, but it's on your own from here on out. The beauty and the brilliance of the gospel is that he both gives us sight for our blind eyes and transforms our bent and broken hearts to become more like him. And in so doing, we become the people that we were created to be. We long to be loving, right? We just have a hard time getting there. We want to be patient with our kids. Oh, but Lord, <laughs> have mercy on us. Sometimes it's difficult, right? The result is don't, it's not try harder. The solution is look to Jesus. So whether you are just walking in these doors and you have no experience with Jesus, the call to you is look to Jesus. Do you find yourself in a place where you're in a rut and you seem to be replaying the same scripts of your past, of your parents? You find yourself wanting to move towards a person, but you just can't quite get there. I would invite you to look to Jesus. For those of us who have been walking with the Lord for a while, and you say, Josh, this sounds great, but I am worn out. I have been trying to look to Jesus. I want to become like him, but I just don't see the progress. I just don't see to be making any movement. Well, my encouragement to you is that this passage in 2 Corinthians acknowledges that reality. At the end, he says, we are transformed into his image degree by degree, ever so gently, ever so slowly. If, if the Lord tried to transform my character, my identity, who I am, in an instant when I first started following Jesus, it would have, like, shattered me. <laughs> there was far too much work that he needed to do in my heart. And he's a gentle shepherd. 
He is the good vine dresser. He's gentle with us. He's careful with us, degree by degree. And also, you know, I, I think we have to look to more than just this week, how this week went, right? If I said to my daughter, sweet Caroline, eight years old, I said, Caroline, I have not seen you grow. You're the same height as you were last week. So no more food. It's not working. The food's not working. So we're going to save money. Maybe something else will work. I, one, I love her. Two, I don't want to go to jail. But I mainly love her. (laughs) No, I know that the food is good for her. And when she eats, when she consumes, her body is working in silent, sometimes in hiding, but it's working. She is growing to become the woman that God wants her to be. And I also have this thing that serves up memories from a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, and I can see, oh, Caroline has grown. Caroline is getting bigger. The food is working, so I'm guessing I'm going to keep feeding her. (laughs) When we think about our walk with the Lord, becoming like Jesus, I just want to encourage you, don't, don't grow weary of not seeing any progress in the moment. We know that when we look to Jesus, he is working on us. He is acting on us. When we worship him, we are becoming like him. So... I want to start landing the plane here which, with, again, asking the question, what does it mean to behold Jesus, right? I hope most of us are like, okay, Jesus is great. Jesus is better. I want to behold him. And I'm like, okay, let's go behold him. And you're just like, okay. Like, well, who, where do I behold? <laughs> I want to give you an example of a, of a sailboat. Picture a sailboat on, in the middle of Lake Michigan. You can't see any of the shore, and you need to get to land. So you have a few options. One option is you say, you know what? I'm going to hop out of this thing. I'm going to get up right against it, and I'm going to kick as hard as I can. And I'm just going to, because I'm strong, I can do it. If I push hard enough, We'll get to the land. The problem is, you're just not strong enough. (laughs) Maybe if the boat was like maybe a foot from the dock, yeah, sure, maybe. But you can't even see the shore, so what do we think we're doing here? (laughs) This approach is taking control. Second approach is you could get in the boat, and you can just say, you know what? I hope that the river current of Lake Michigan takes me home. I'm going to just let go and let God. The, the problem is there ain't no river in Lake Michigan, as they say in Lake Michigan. And you're not going to go anywhere. But there's a third option. And you realize this is a sailboat. And so you raise the sail. And as the wind blows and the sail catches it, the boat is propelled forward. Now, in the boat, your responsibility is not to make the wind blow. 
And sometimes the wind doesn't blow or doesn't blow as much as you would want it. You're responsible to be faithful to, to raise the sail. It's not your job to make sure the wind is blowing. And when the boat gets to the shore, are you going to say, I was, look how fast I was getting here. Look how strong I was getting this boat here. No, you were, all you did is raise a piece of fabric, right? <laughs> the wind pushed you. And so it is when we behold Jesus. God has given us things, practices, avenues that he has ordained that are like raising the sail, that we are called to be faithful. We don't control the power. We don't control when it blows. He has just given us these things that we are faithful. Day after day, we raise the sail. And by God's grace, as we behold him, he moves us closer and closer, degree by degree, one degree of glory to the next. So what, what are these sails, metaphorically speaking? Well, I'll pre- I, I want to present to you three broad categories. A lot can be said. I think a lot of things fall in these categories. But one ultimately is just to behold Jesus. And the question is, how do we do that? One category would be we behold Jesus through the truth of Jesus. We behold him through his truth. Now, truth is more than just a bunch of data or facts, right? What I'm not talking about is being able to memorize the lineage of Jesus and be able to rattle it off, even though that's important. But if we just memorize facts and details that don't cohere to a broader story, that doesn't get us anywhere. What I'm talking about truth is being able to come to God's word and see that this is a coherent story. This is a beautiful story of redemption and restoration and that we are all in that story. See, whatever however you answer the question of where is this story heading? Who are the good guys in the story? Who are the bad guys in the story? What's my job in the story? How you answer that question determines your character arc. It determines who, what type of person you become. So church, it's really important that we know God's word. Not just a bunch of details, but we have a deep, rich understanding of how it is. And then what, what happens is we look out We look out and we see the world in light of God's story that he's invited us into. Two, we behold Jesus through the people of Jesus. Now, are there any S2 students here? There we go. Got tally. There we go. All right. So your parents, your guardians, probably care a lot and they ask a lot about who are you hanging out with. Who are your friends? Why is that? Because they're wise. And they know that the people you become close with in middle school, in a large way, dictates who you are when you graduate high school. Our relationships act on us. And these are, when I say, you know, your community, what I'm getting at are the people who you give yourself to, who you share your dreams with, your fears with, you're vulnerable with. You remove the veil from who you are before. These are the people that shape who we become. Jesus has given us a metaphor 
for the church, which is the body of Christ. So if we want to become more like Jesus, it might make sense to spend time with his body. And so the invitation for us is to consider who are these people? Who are these influences on our life? Not that we don't have relationships with non-Christians. Far be it from that. We want to be present in and love everybody we come across. But who are the folks that we're giving ourselves to? And are they people who are mutually trying to become like Jesus together, who are helping one another to behold our King. Third and last, behold Jesus through the habits of Jesus. The habits that we hold shape who we become. We see this woven throughout the law in the Old Testament. Now Israel, through the law, had habits of being in the word, of prayer, communal habits, habits of feasting, habits of fasting. Jesus takes up many of these habits in his life. We can read about him in the Gospels. And then the, the church, the New, New Testament church, and for millennia of church history, God's people have taken up many of these habits as well. But for a number of reasons, when we look at Jesus in the Gospels, we think, because of our culture, what's most important is agreeing with what Jesus said, not doing what Jesus did. And we have disconnected what we believe in our heads about Jesus from what we habitually do in our bodies. These things are connected. And so what happens is when we're not intentional about, okay, we want to not only, sure, agree with Jesus, know what Jesus knew, believe it, but we also want to follow his example in the habits that he held. When we are not intentional about that, what happens is we ended up just drinking the Kool-Aid of the habits that have been engineered for us by Netflix, by Apple, by Uber Eats. We are creatures of habit, all of us. The question is, which habits are you embodying? Are they the habits of Jesus that's helping us to shape us into his image? or the habits of our world, who's deforming us, bending us away from his image. The invitation for us is to, again, metaphorically speaking, be faithful to lift the sail by God's grace, and the spirit is what pushes us. Now, I don't know all the details about your crazy uncle. I don't know the details about your crazy neighbor. I don't know the details about that person that used to be in your, your community group. But what I do know is though they may have been five years ago saying the right things, their hearts were beholding the wrong thing. Because if they have become less like Jesus, then we know that they were not beholding Jesus. So the invitation for us, church, is to behold Jesus. He alone is worthy. He is better. He is worthy of all of our affection, all of our worship. Why? Because when we behold him, we become the type of people that he created us to be. We were made to be. And more than that, more than just for our good, it is for the good of our community. It's for the good of our neighborhood, of our classmates. It's good for our children. Because when we behold Jesus and we resemble him the most, that is when we also love people the most. So church, behold Jesus and be shaped like him.
Would y'all pray with me? Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.